My brothers and sisters, one of the most remarkable truths that I'm not altogether sure that we're really ever going to fully be able to understand the full implications of this until we go to live in heaven is that God actually comes and moves into us and takes up residence in our hearts. And I know it's so easy to quote the scriptures and talk about Jesus living in our hearts and being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But when we really stop to consider the full implications of what we're saying, the potential of that becomes beyond measure in our earthly limited understanding of what we're really saying when we say that the God of the entire universe has come to us to become a part of us and to become a part of our life. That's the thing that separates and divides Christianity from all the other religions in the world. In religions like Hinduism, it's a fear of God. That's the reason that when we do the great crusades in India, the Hindus just come to Him. When people understand that God's not angry with them and He's not out to get them, Because of His great love, He wants to bless them and He wants to move in their life. He wants to bring good things to them. He came to give them life, to give all of us life and life abundantly. And not just blessing, but He actually wants to come and take up residence within us and be a part of our life on an ongoing basis. In our last lesson, we studied together how the the thing that makes the church unique And our identity as believers from God's perspective and God's highest desire is that the church be a place where God actually comes and meets with us and a place where people can go and experience Him, can go and meet Him. Not just go to the Lone Star Stake lecture series, but go to the Lone Star Stake house where eventually somebody gets to eat, somebody gets full, somebody gets blessed. It's not just theory. It's not just ideas and opinions and information. But there comes a moment when that which is spoken of and taught about and learned and understood with an academic, intellectual, cognitive dimension of personality becomes personal and it becomes experiential because we've touched God and God has touched us. And the thing that makes us unique as Christians and the thing that makes the church unique from God's perspective is He desires it to be a place where He can come and meet with His people. I want us to look together, please, in your Bibles at Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we find a most amazing, remarkable event. Now remember that there's nothing in the Bible that's there by accident. Everything that's there is there for a purpose and that God's not a teaser, and God's not a show-off. And everything He does, He does as part of a great, wonderful, sovereign will that He's working out in our hearts and in our lives and in the world in general. In Luke chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus said to His disciples, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see The kingdom of God. Everybody in your Bible underline the word see the kingdom of God. You don't have a pen, underline it in your heart. Jesus said to his disciples, There are some of you that are standing here that are not going to die until you actually see the kingdom of God. Now many Christians read this scripture 
and they think that he's referring to heaven. We don't have time in this session to get into the fullness of that, but there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Many Christians don't understand that, that there's a difference. Heaven is a place. Heaven is a place more real than Columbus. Heaven is a place with gold streets, mansions, angels, flowers. I mean, all of these wonderful blessings that we're going to enjoy, a place of the river of God and the mountain of God. It's a place that's more real than any place that we've ever been in our life. That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is like what we've already said. It is when a measure of that realm spills over into our realm down here on the earth. It is when a bit of the heavenly realm invades the earthly realm. It's when the heavens open and some of the contents of that side comes in over here on the natural side of things. Jesus said the kingdom of God is where? Within you. Nobody has gold streets and mansions and all of those kind of things inside of us, but we do have a measure of that within us. We won't take time to go into this. We don't have the time. Jesus said this, and like so many other things that he said, they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Verse 28, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, underline that, who appeared in glory, and spoke of Jesus' decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw, there it is again, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Then it happens, they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, Peter was known for saying some really dumb things. This was one of them. Because Peter is in this place of seeing Jesus wrapped in glory, it's called the transfiguration. Jesus doesn't look like the Jesus look that came up the mountain with him. Suddenly, his face and the skin of his body is illuminated in this brilliant, brilliant light. His clothes are whiter than any white, whiter than new snow, cleaner than soap will ever get a white garment. And here standing in this place in glory is Elijah and Moses. And Peter, seeing this revelation, has this really dumb idea, which he said, Jesus, I, I see it all now. We'll build three tents. We'll build three tabernacles. We'll build one for Moses, and we'll call that the Moses Tabernacle. We'll build one for Elijah, and we'll call that the Elijah Tabernacle. Jesus, we'll build one for you, and we'll call that the Jesus Tabernacle. And I mean, the people will come from everywhere. I mean, we'll build a Hampton Inn and put up a Shoney's and arrange tours and, you know, run a monorail between the three tents and call it glory land. I'm being facetious, you understand, when I say that. But he's got this mindset that what he is seeing at this moment is some sort of a spectacle. 
And what he was saying so offended God that God shows up in a cloud. The Shekinah glory of God comes on this place where they were gathered. A cloud came and overshadowed them, verse 34 said, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. What the Father was literally saying, my brothers and sisters, is the reason that I've allowed you to see this, the reason that I've allowed you to see Jesus standing here in these garments whiter than snow, bathed in heavenly light, to see the glory on Him and to see this vision of Moses and Elijah, the reason that I've allowed you to see this is so you'll understand that He really is my Son. And I want you to listen to what He says. This isn't some sort of a show that I'm putting on to entertain you. But this is my revelation to you of who He really is that you would listen to Him. And my guess would be from that day on, Jesus never looked the same again to Peter and James and John. Now, I would like to suggest something that may seem a little radical to some of you. I would like to suggest to you that Jesus never changed at all. He never changed at all. But what actually happened on that night was the eyes of the disciples were opened and they were able to see the spirit realm. There's a whole other realm here tonight beyond the natural realm that our natural eyes do not behold. However, if our natural eyes were opened and God allowed us to see into the realm of the Spirit, our picture tonight would be much fuller than it is just using natural eyesight. We would see the realm of the Spirit, and in that realm we would see angels. Did you know there really are angels? There are angels. We can't take the time to get off into angels tonight. And as this revival intensifies, the ministry of angels is going to only increase in the days ahead. But there really are angels. And if our eyes were open tonight, we could see into that realm. We would see them. We would also see demons and harassing spirits as well. It happened all through the Bible that God opened the eyes of people and allowed them to see into the realm of spirit. That's what we call visions and trances. And, you know, it was like Ezekiel said, you know, I was by the river Chabar and gave the month and the date and everything. He said, when I saw the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. That's what a vision is, is when God opens the heavenly realm and allows us to behold that realm while still in our natural body. One of my favorite accounts in Scripture of this is found in the account of Elisha and his servant where the king of Syria had sent an army to Dothan to kill Elisha. And they got up in the morning and the Syrian army had surrounded the city and Elisha's servant is terrified and said, what are we going to do? And Elisha replies, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And can't you just hear the servant saying, well, boss... Uh, I hate to break this to you, but I'm counting right now, and I'm counting one, two, and however I count it, it still comes up at one, two, and whichever order you want to count it, it's you and I, and I'm counting a lot more of two of them. 
And Elisha prays. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he can see. And when he did, suddenly he could see the Syrian army surrounding Dothan, but now the mountains all around Dothan are filled with chariots of fire as a heavenly army of angels has been dispatched right out of heaven to come to Elisha's aid. Has anybody ever wondered how God answers prayer? Many times God answers prayer by the ministry of angels. I believe Elisha prayed and the father just looked at a commander of a legion of heaven's angels and just said, go down there to Dothan and take care of that situation. And it's an amazing story. Ultimately, the prophet Elisha took the entire Syrian army prisoner because the angels had blinded them all. You see, Elisha had his eyes open and the army had theirs closed. But there's a realm of the unseen. And what I'd like to suggest that really happened on that mountain that night was not that Jesus necessarily changed, but rather the disciples had their eyes open into a realm that they'd never seen before, and in that realm they saw the real Jesus. Now the reason I believe that is found in Matthew chapter 17. Look over there very quickly. Matthew chapter 17 records this same account. And Jesus says in Matthew 17, verse 9, As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, and look what he said, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Tell the vision. It was not that Jesus changed. Their eyes were opened, and they were able to see into the realm of the Spirit. The transfiguration was not a physical change of Jesus' body. It was a vision that came as a result of the disciples having their eyes open to the spirit realm. Now, there's two kinds of spiritual sight in the Bible. The first one is spiritual sight, which is the result of the Holy Spirit giving intellectual enlightenment or understanding to a believer. It is the revelation of spiritual truth. The Holy Spirit is our great teacher. And when we go to God's Word and we read God's Word, the Holy Spirit comes and makes that Word life to us. How many have ever read the Word and just had a Scripture, just jumped off the page? And it was like there was nothing else on the page but that Scripture. Well, That's the Holy Spirit coming in one of His ministries, in one of His offices as a teacher to enlighten us. That type of spiritual sight is sight that is based in Holy Spirit revelation. It is Holy Spirit enlightenment. But the second type of spiritual sight, and that's what we're referring to here, is when the Holy Spirit comes and actually allows us to see into the spirit realm. And I believe with all of my heart that's what happened that night. It was not that Jesus changed, but their ability to look at Jesus changed. And when they saw him, brothers and sisters, they saw this incredible glory that was on him. They saw this incredible measure of glory that Jesus lived in. Jesus was the Son of God, divine at every point. But He was also the Son of Man. That means He was God, but He was God living in a man's body. And for that 33-year period of time that He was in the earth, though He was God, He still had the same limitations as any other man, any other human would have. 
However, he lived in an indescribable measure of the Father's presence and the Father's glory. That's why Jesus said, The Father is always with me. The works I do, I don't do these things on my own. Jesus talked about this relationship through the Holy Spirit in John 5, John 8, John 12. He talked about it in Matthew 12 where he said, If I by the Spirit of God cast out devils, then the kingdom of God has come among you. There it is, the kingdom of God, which is the revelation of that realm in our realm, resulting in deliverance, you see. But Jesus lived in this incredible measure of glory. Remember in the story of his birth that glory was on the mountains around about Bethlehem the night he was born. The angels were there singing and worshiping God and some shepherds stumbled into their party and were terrified. The angels said that was an open heaven. The heavens were opened over at Bethlehem that night. This angel says to the shepherds, don't be afraid. We do you no harm. We bring you good news for tonight down there in Bethlehem. The Messiah has been born. Jesus has come. And he's a mighty good-looking baby, if we do have to say so ourselves. Would you like to go down there and see him? We'll stay here and take care of the sheep. The shepherds went down and saw Jesus and Mary and Joseph in the manger. There was glory at the time of his birth. When Jesus was taken eight days after his birth to the temple for dedication, there was an elderly man by the name of Simeon that had spent all these many years there in the temple worshiping and praying and interceding. And God had spoken to Simeon and said, Simeon, you will not die until you see the coming of the Messiah. And so eight days later, Simeon is there in the temple. And Mary and Joseph come bringing an eight-day-old baby Jesus. There's an elderly woman there. Her name is Anna. Anna has been in the temple for decades, worshiping, praying, interceding, loving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, praising the Lord, enjoying God. And here comes Mary and Joseph with a little blanket and an eight-day-old baby boy. And suddenly Simeon stops and says, in essence, Father, now I can die. My life is now complete. Now I can leave this world behind and go to heaven to live because you fulfill your promise to me. My eyes have seen the Messiah. Anna begins to worship and praise the Lord and worship and praise and worship and praise and worship and praise because Mary and Joseph bring an eight-day-old baby to the temple. Now, what was there different about this baby to any other baby? In the natural, nothing. I don't believe Jesus was wearing a little T-shirt that said Messiah and a little arrow pointing up at his face. I don't believe that happened. I think Jesus, when he was eight days old, looked like anybody else's eight-day-old. But the thing that made him different is Simeon and Anna knew him in the Spirit. They knew him in the Spirit. They identified their relationship with God by glory and by presence. And when that glory and that presence of the one that they prayed to, that one that they loved, that one that they worshipped, all these many years, when that presence came into the temple, it didn't bother them at all that it was in a six or seven pound wrapper carried by Mary and Joseph to the dedication. They were looking beyond the little 19 inches, the little six or seven pounds, 
They thought, my God, this is the one we've been worshiping. This is the one we've been loving. This is the one we've been praying to. And they just began to worship him eight days old. When Jesus was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph lost him for a period of days. And they were terrified. You see, slavery was all part of the culture of that day. And we're concerned about children being abducted. It was a bigger problem then than it is now because people would steal other people's children and transport them away and sell them for money as slaves. And Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They thought he was with somebody else and the someone else thought he was with Mary and Joseph and they got together and they said, where's Jesus? And they said, well, he's with you. Well, he's not with us. We thought he was with you. Well, we thought he was with you. Well, where is he? And he was gone. And they searched high and low. Finally, they found him, 12 years old, sitting in the temple, speaking, talking, discussing with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Wouldn'tsees, and the Couldn'tsees that were there. And Mary came in, and I'm adding to this, you understand my heart. She was a woman, and she was a mother. And like any mother that has lost her 12-year-old son for three days and suddenly discovers in a moment he's alive and he's well and I've got him back, I'm sure there was a tremendous amount of relief and release when she saw him. But moms, that probably gave way very quickly to where in the world have you been? (laughs) I have been going out of my mind worrying about you. I have not had a moment's sleep. I mean, do you understand? I thought you were with, we went, we looked, we told, they said you were, we, we went, all of this kind of stuff. Right in the middle of it all, I can just see Jesus looking at his exasperated, out-of-control mother that thought he was gone and now he's back and now she's upset over all she's gone through emotionally. I can see Jesus looking at her and say, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? You see, my brothers and sisters, he knew who he was. He knew who he was as a child. In all likelihood, Joseph died when Jesus was a teenager. And Jesus took over his father's carpentry business. He made tables. He made chairs in the years that followed. He did no miracles. He healed no one of sickness or disease. He cast out no devils. Never preached. He ran a woodworking shop. I can almost see Jesus walking down the streets. There's a young mother with a baby burning up with a fever, crying, knowing that baby's terribly, terribly ill, and knowing that the baby was probably going to die. And yet Jesus passes her on the street and did nothing to heal that baby, for his time had not yet come. I can see Jesus angry, angry, angry. At seeing a man or a woman created in the image of God to be a habitation of God, to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. I can see Jesus angry to behold a man or a woman infested with demons and devils. And yet, he did nothing to help them. He did nothing to help them, for his time had not yet come. However, when he was 30 years of age, he went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. The Bible says that when Jesus came up out of the waters, there it is again, the Bible says, and the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus 
like a dove. Now, one of my favorite sacred cows to shoot every opportunity I get to shoot one is the idea that it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Bird. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. He's not a dove. He's part of the Trinity. He's co-equal with the Father, for He is the Spirit of the Father. He is co-equal with Jesus, for He is the Spirit, the Bible says, of Christ. Who you are, who I am, is really not the body that we live in. It's who we are inside, spiritually. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. He is the Spirit of the Son. Where we get that notion of the Holy Spirit being a dove, and it's perfectly okay to use a symbol of a dove on a banner or a, a logo, an advertisement, because it's a symbol of a dove, people understand that that is representative, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But where we get that whole notion was not that the Holy Spirit was a dove, but when John said, I saw the Holy Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, he was describing not the Holy Spirit, but the descent and the manner in which the Holy Spirit had come. A dove, unique among birds, if you've ever watched one fly down to land, it just doesn't fly down and land. A dove will fly down to the place that it is about to land, and then for a moment, like a hummingbird, it will hover. It will hover in the air and then step down. And so what John actually saw was the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and hover over him and brood over him like a dove hovers and broods over the place that it's about to land. Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and when he came back out of the wilderness, my brothers and sisters, his earthly ministry was on. He was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. I met a man in South Africa, Daniel Ekachuyu, from Nigeria. How many have heard the testimony of this Nigerian pastor that was killed in an automobile accident? was dead for three days, embalmed, and was raised from the dead in one of Reinhard Bonnke's meetings. It's amazing. I met that man last Friday night. A remarkable testimony. A remarkable... He was dead. I mean, the doctors had signed the death certificates. They had embalmed him. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. Just being in a church, in the basement of a church where his wife and family had brought him. And Bonnke was upstairs preaching in a church. And when Reinhard Bonnke said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. A dead man in the basement that had been embalmed for three days sits up out of the, the casket. Daniel's going all over the world giving his testimony of what God did for him. Well, Jesus raised people from the dead, healed the sick, cast out devils. His name became a household word all over the known world. Everyone was talking about Jesus and his ministry and the things that were happening in his meetings. And yet Jesus said himself, I don't do these mighty works of power. It's the Father who is always with me. The Father is always with me. The Father has not left me alone. As I hear, I judge. And what Jesus was talking about was this wonderful fellowship and this wonderful intimacy and this wonderful relationship that he was enjoying 
in His Father's presence, in His Father's glory. That's what Peter and James and John saw that night on the Mount of Transfiguration, is they saw Jesus clothed in this heavenly anointing, clothed in this glory. And yet all the while that Jesus was on the earth, He knew why He had come here. He knew what He was here to do. I can imagine Jesus getting a splinter in His hand. Anybody ever had a splinter in your hand? It hurts. Anybody that's ever worked with wood has got a splinter in the hand. He was a woodworker. I can see Jesus trying to ease a little splinter out of his hand and stop it and thinking to himself, you know, this really hurts. I wonder what it's going to feel like when they drive nails through my hands. Today it's a little piece of wood. The day will come they will drive nails through my hands. I can imagine Jesus having a little blister on his foot, a sandal too tight or something. Think to himself, I wonder what it's going to feel like when they drive nails through these feet. How many times must Jesus have walked in and out of Jerusalem over the course of his life before he came into the popularity that he came into the last three years? Can you in your imagination see Jesus standing out on the road looking over to the garbage dump, Golgotha, and seeing there a thief, a murderer being crucified on a cross? And yet Jesus stands there and looks at him and thinks to himself, one day that'll be me. I wonder if somebody will stand here on this road when my day comes, look over and gaze upon me as I'm dying. You see, my brothers and sisters, everything that happened to Jesus, He knew, He knew, He knew. For He always knew why He had come. He always knew why He was here in the world, that He had come to become the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sin of the entire world. He knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to be whipped. That was the reason that he was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane the night before and praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How many saw the movie The Passion? Jesus knew that everything that went on in that movie that you sat spellbound for two hours and five minutes watching, Jesus always knew that that was coming. He knew it. If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not your will be done. Three times he had to pray it. Finally, they arrested him. They took him out and they tried him. Jesus was not concerned about the outcome of the trial. He knew already what the outcome was going to be. When they said, give us Barabbas, Jesus was not surprised in the least. When they took him and tied his hands and began to beat him with a cat of nine tails whip, a Roman whip with nine strips of leather with pieces of metal embedded in it, and that cat of nine tails whip was laid across his back, and those pieces of metal penetrated his back and the back of his arms and his neck like little fish hooks. And when that whip was cracked, it tore flesh and skin with it. Thirty-nine times they did that to him. When they were finished with the whipping, there was nothing to suture. There was no stitches needed in his back. His whole back, his neck, his shoulders, his arms, everything was laid wide open with just little tags and strips of skin and flesh and just hanging there, blood everywhere. And yet none of that surprised Jesus. When he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, leaving a blood trail in his wake, didn't surprise him at all. He knew that was coming. When he got out to the garbage dump, they laid him on the ground. 
They nailed those big iron nails to his hands. The pain would have been excruciating, and yet it did not catch him by surprise because he always knew that that would be his destiny. The Romans killed people, and they were good at it. And in order to punish them to the max, most people don't understand that the purpose of crucifixion was to make it last as long as you could make it last. And it was not blood loss that killed people. Most people that died of crucifixion did not die from blood loss because they were very careful to avoid major arteries and veins in the hands and the feet because they didn't want them to just bleed out and die in a matter of minutes. They wanted it to last hours and if they could to make it last days. And so they crucified Jesus there. But when they got ready to nail his feet, it was customary that the person being crucified would bend their knees and one single nail would be driven through the top of both feet and into the cross. And once the feet had been securely planted in that position, they would nail in place a small wooden step. What actually killed people in crucifixion was not blood loss, it was suffocation. Because people being crucified with their arms outstretched like this hour after hour, it became increasingly difficult to breathe. And at the very end, they could choose to trade the agony of a nail piercing both of their feet and push up on that little wooden step to take the pressure off of their arm in order to gain one more breath. That was the reason that when the Romans wanted to finish it off, they just broke the legs. They broke the leg bones of people being crucified. And when they broke their legs, then they couldn't push up, and they would just choke to death in a minute or so, and that was the end of the crucifixion. Jesus lived in that state from 9 a.m. in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, yet knowing that everything that was going to happen to him was coming in advance. But brothers and sisters, there's something that happened to Jesus in the last moments before he died that he did not anticipate. There was something that happened to Jesus right in the last moments of life that he did not know was coming. Would you look with me, please, at Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, right at 3 o'clock, right at the time that he died, the Bible says that about the ninth hour, in verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those that stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Something happened in these scriptures, brothers and sisters, that he had not anticipated. He anticipated the nails. He anticipated the beatings. He anticipated the humiliation, the pain, the suffering, and everything else that went with the crucifixion. But right before he died, 
something happened that caught him completely by surprise. And that was that suddenly that fellowship, that intimacy, that glory that Peter and James and John had seen, that Simeon and Anna had seen, that awareness of his Father's glory, his Father's presence, that anointing that was on him in the moments before he died, it was gone. It was gone. And he had not anticipated that happening. And he said, my Lord and my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Because he didn't see that one coming. Now, some people have tried to say, well, God turned his back on Jesus because of the sin that he was carrying. And that makes sense to explain it that way. But if you really think about it a little bit, there were only about 10 million people alive in the world at that time. The sin of the world is far greater than the sin when Jesus died. And God hasn't turned his back on the world tonight, thank God. There has to be another explanation of why suddenly that glory, that presence, that intimacy, and that fellowship that he had lived in for 33 years, suddenly it was taken from him. He didn't understand what had happened, and there has to be another explanation. And that explanation is found in John 17. Turn there with me. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his church. It's the last prayer that Jesus prays before Gethsemane. And he's praying to the Father, and he's saying, in essence, I've finished the race. I've done everything you've asked me to do. My work here is over. And Jesus prays in John 17, 5. He said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is saying, I've finished everything you've sent me to do, Father. I'm done here. Now glorify me again with the glory that I had with you before the creation of the world. And so Jesus goes on to pray for his disciples. And then in verse 20, something really remarkable happens. He prays for you, and he prays for me, and he prays for the church today. And he says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, meaning the disciples, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's how you and I believe in Jesus. It's because of the word of the disciples that were there with him. And Jesus prays in verse 21 that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the answer to what happened in the last seconds of the cross when Jesus cried out and said, My Lord, my God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? is found in verse 22 where Jesus said, In the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you loved me. My brothers and sisters, what actually happened, I believe, those last moments on the cross, is that glorious anointing, that glorious dimension of heaven, that awesome presence of God that had rested upon Jesus from Bethlehem's manger and for the ensuing 33 years was at that moment taken from Jesus. And as he died, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began 
was given to him. And that glory that was on Jesus now became available to his disciples. Suddenly, it became available and accessible to the church. The glory that you give me, I have given to them. What Peter, James, and John saw, that now belongs to the church. That now belongs to us. That's us. What the disciples saw that night on the mountain is yours. It's mine. It's every church. It's every believer. And God in these days is restoring us to that place of His presence, that place of His power, and His glory. That's exciting to me, that we can walk in what Jesus walked in. Amen?